0: Welcome to Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. No bias, no conjecture, just facts. So, let's go. We got this whole debate about minimum wage completely wrong. I remember my first job. It was fun. I was a stockroom guy in a retail store at Scarborough Town Center, the mall where all my friends hung out and came to and it was exciting. It was so exciting for me going to high school and telling my friends that, yo, I work at Town Center, and come through, see me, and my friends would. Friday, Saturday nights with their girlfriends or friends the crew, they'd come to the store, we'd hang out, I'd try to get them a discount on something they were buying. It was fun. It was proud for me to tell my friends that I worked at this store. I made colleagues and friends at the store, and I I learned how retail worked. It was a learning experience in a world I had no idea about. But it was minimum wage, and I had no idea what minimum wage meant. I didn't know $6.85 an hour was a good rate or a bad rate. All I knew was that I was making money, and that I was making money in um, a store that I could take that money home and use for my cell phone, for my Friend outings and taking my girlfriend out. All the things that I wanted to do, I could suddenly do. A whole new world of finances opened up for me. I opened a bank account. I started tossing money in there. I started contributing to an RSP. I don't even know what an RSP is. I'm sitting in... uh the office of a bank with a financial advisor at 17 years old, and he's telling me about how markets have steadily gone up over the past, I don't even know how many years, and this is all falling on deaf ears to a 16-year-old kid like myself who had no idea about what money meant. I'd spend my money on all types of stupid stuff back then, fast food, jeans, Clothing, all thi- all the things that, you know, 16-year-old kids today spend their money on. And I had no understanding of what minimum wage meant. But as I looked around, I realized that not everybody was 16 that was making minimum wage. Not everybody was going to high school during the day and then coming to work at night. For a lot of people that I worked with, this was their Every day, this was their bread and butter. This is how they put food on the table. And many of my friends that I worked with that weren't my age worked multiple jobs. Multiple jobs at minimum wage just to keep the lights on, to keep making sure that their rent was paid, making sure there was food on the table. It was an interesting dynamic because you had these young kids like myself and a few of my friends And then you had other people in the job that were, you know, 25, 26, even in their 30s, working in these stores. And I was in a mall, so I'd always see the regulars at different stores, and I'd say, what's up to them? But I'd also see people that were much older as well, and I'd say hi to them too. And what I realized is that minimum wage isn't just for 16-year-olds. It's for everybody. There's people who are, because of life circumstances, are making minimum wage. And maybe they try to go back to school, try to upgrade their skills or whatever the case is. Um, But they are still making minimum wage and they're working in retail. And I'll tell you, I remember working one day because I had a day off. Uh, I had like a PA day or something in high school. And I said to my manager, oh yeah, just throw, I'm available if you want me. So he put me on the day shift and it was only myself, another salesperson and the manager. And I tell you, there's something odd about working a day shift Uh, at a retail store that you've only really associated evenings and weekends to you know it was a random day in the week and um it was interesting just to see how it was just so dead and kind of eerie you know friday night saturday sunday i mean there's so many people coming in and out, people who are finished their week want to go to the mall and spend some money and then here is a random tuesday 10 a.m and it's just so dead and I think about that because there are so many minimum wage workers in retail today that are working these irregular hours because they have to put food on the table. And so what I noticed too on the timesheets was that everybody worked irregular hours. You know, I'd get 15 hours, 12, 15 hours. Uh, someone else would get 27 hours. Someone else would get 30 hours. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, if you if this is your only job, man, that 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 sheet is your livelihood you want to make sure you maximize your hours because otherwise how else are you going to get paid that is why i think a lot of people on minimum wage work multiple jobs because of the irregularity in their in their uh, in their jobs what i also realized too is the diversity in the mix of people who work minimum wage not only are they older, but this idea that they're, you know, male or female or, or whatever, it's actually quite interesting to see what the research shows. In fact, more females uh, make lower wages uh, and are more. And fifty-eight percent of females um, make minimum wage. What's also interesting too is that recent immigrants make uh, minimum wage more than the national average. Thirty-five percent of recent immigrants, those who have been here less than ten years are more likely to make minimum wage than not immigrants that have been here longer than 10 years. So the minimum wage diversity is, is quite interesting. And the precariousness of work. You know, that word is thrown around a lot, precarious work. But minimum wage workers are forced into these precarious environments. They're forced to work in situations where... You know, the job security may not fully be there. Your employer can fire you within one to two weeks' notice. You may or may not have health and dental benefits. Most times you probably don't have those things. And again, going back to my example, you don't have regular hours. So each week, it's a struggle. And it must add stress for those in that uh, field, especially full-time. Now, precarious work is interesting because with it comes the ability forces the individual to think up other ways that they can stay employed. But again, for 16-year-old Chris, that wasn't a concern for me. And so I always wondered, well, why are people work, petitioning for workers' rights? I mean, I'm 16, making minimum wage. I'm hoping to make more once I graduate college and university. But the reality is is that people work minimum wage for a host of reasons. And it was unfair for me to say or think that everybody on minimum wage is between 15 to 19 years of age. In fact, the research has shown that there's only about 18% of all minimum wage workers between that age group. In fact, the majority of minimum wage workers are between the ages of 20 and 39. So, given all of this, it's understandable why governments around the world are wrestling with the idea of making more legislation employee-focused. Now, what's interesting here is that in the early 2000s, I had no idea what minimum wage meant. I didn't know that it was frozen since 1995. And between 1995 and 2015, minimum wage was frozen for 12 of those years. So can you imagine? You're working minimum wage, and for 12 years, you don't get a single raise. But since then, minimum wage has actually increased quite dramatically and steadily in Ontario. In fact, between 2003 to 2010, minimum wage rose by about 30%. And between 2010 to 2017, it leveled off between $11.44 to $11.91. But the previous government, under Kathleen Wynne, proposed minimum wage to increase from uh, $11.91 in 2017 to $15 an hour by 2019. Now there were a host of provisions for this under the Bill 148 that the previous government enacted. It was called the Fair Workers Better Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act. And what this act tried to do, at least there's many aspects to this act, but five main points to this act was first to raise minimum wage to $15 an hour by January 1st, 2019, to up up to 17 weeks leave for workers or their child after surviving domestic or sexual violence, with the first five days being paid, 10 days of personal emergency leave per calendar year for all workers, including two paid days, are required three weeks annual paid vacation for all workers who have stayed with their employer for five years. And finally, equal pay for part-time workers who do the same job as full-time workers. Now, what's interesting with this legislation is, again, unlike anything that I'd seen before, there was a focus on the employee. It was employee-focused legislation, a direct response to many, many workers' groups that advocated for the rights of minimum wage earners. Heck, I remember the protests when I were young $10 Ten dollars an hour was the first protests I saw. then thirteen dollars, then fourteen, and then fifteen dollars. most recently fifteen dollars in fairness, a group that campaigned for fifteen dollars an hour for minimum wage workers, was something that was pressuring the government to change its course to not leave minimum wage untouched, but that it needs to increase because the cost of living, especially in our cities, are going up quite dramatically, and that minimum wage was Unfortunately, keeping people in poverty, at least according to some. I think what else was interesting with this bill was that finally here was legislation that enshrined vacation, paid vacation days for those that had stayed with their same employer for five years. I think back to that store that I worked at in Scarborough Town Center. There were so many people who had been with the company for seven, eight, nine years who started there when they were 16 and continued into their mid-20s and late-20s that, for whatever reason, they were very loyal to the company, but they weren't receiving any types of benefits at all. And so this was a way in which to reward that. It was a way in which to say, you had stayed with this company for so long making this money, you should deserve some paid time off as well, making sure that there was paid time off for those that were suffering from domestic and sexual violence. Again, a direct response to the fact that the majority of minimum wage workers were female. I think that was really interesting that the previous government put in place. Fast forward to June 2018, when the Progressive Conservative Party was elected to the province. Its premier, Doug Ford, and its leader, Doug Ford, was pressured by various groups to repeal Bill 148. The reason being because so many businesses were up in arms at the government for trying to mandate minimum wage increases in this short period of time. Again, to put it into perspective, between 2003 to 2010, minimum wage rose by about 30%. Between 2017 to 2019, a two-year span, Minimum wage was set to increase by 26%. Many employers were concerned that because of this increase so dramatically in such a short period of time, it would force employers to employ less, to look at their budgets, perhaps invest less in Ontario, and look for employment elsewhere. In fact, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce in August 2018, citing many concerns, urged the government to repeal bill 148 because it may reduce the level of capital investment in the province and that staff hours would be dramatically cut think about it like this a few years ago there were people making $15 an hour that were doing well in their jobs maybe they started at minimum wage and they worked up and now they were making 15 an hour by 2019 people at minimum wage would be making what these individuals made and they would demand an increase businesses were concerned, legitimately concerned that Bill 148 was setting a floor too high too quickly. And so the Progressive Conservative Party comes into power in June 2018. Pressured by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and so many other business groups, the Progressive Conservatives start thinking about what to do with minimum wage. Now, before they introduced any bills, there were already some rumors that, oh, they're going to keep the minimum wage at $14 an hour. They're not going to move it up to $15 an hour. It makes sense because they're conservatives and they're not in the interests of the worker. There was so much rhetoric that was being thrown around by pundits. Some even said the Ontario government should just listen to the sensible advice of economists and reinstate the planned minimum wage hike kind of presuming that, listen, this makes sense, just do it. Another said, the, the government is proposing to take away two paid sick days that will simply encourage sick people to go to work where they're likely to infect others, reducing p- productivity, and adding to health care costs if they end up in the hospital. And finally, this was really interesting. This commentator said, in what could be described as a pro-poverty agenda, the Ontario government is slashing in half the previous government's planned increase in welfare payments, shutting down Ontario's universal basic income project that held promise of becoming a world model and scrapping the planned further $1 an hour increase in the minimum wage to $15 effective January 1st, 2019. That's pretty harsh, eh? A pro-poverty agenda. Now again, let's remember what the previous government did. It looked at various forms of uh, the worker. It didn't just look at minimum wage. It understood that the majority of workers at or near minimum wage are female, and it enshrined domestic and sexual assault time off. It saw that workers were loyal to their jobs, and they should have paid vacation. It also enshrined 10 days for personal emergency leave, two of which would be paid, but eight would remain unpaid. So what did this government do? What did the PC government propose? Because based on the pundits, you'd think that they're slashing and cutting everything. Well, in November 2018, the Progressive Conservative Party introduced Bill 47, making Ontario open for business. It was passed on November 21st, and it did the following. First, it kept minimum wage at $14 an hour beginning January 1st, 2019, and it established a 33-month pause in minimum wage increases, with annual increases to the minimum wage tied to inflation. Every worker is now entitled to three days for personal illness, two days for bereavement, and three days for family responsibilities, total of eight days, all unpaid. And finally... It preserves the right of every worker in Ontario to receive three weeks of paid vacation after five years, and it protects current paid leave provisions in cases of domestic and sexual violence affecting an employee or an employer's child. What's important with Bill 47 introduced by the PC government is that it's not as stark a departure from the previous Bill 148. It keeps minimum wage from rising as drastically as it did, but it doesn't nearly do the things in which some pundits have uh, in- characterized it as such. In fact, what Bill Forty Seven does is it keeps some of those aspects. Fifteen and fairness dot uh, sorry, fight for fifteen dollars in fairness dot org, which I encourage you all to go to. Check out this website. It's an organization that has constantly fought for $15 an hour as well as a host of other uh, rights for workers. It has a lot of research on its website that talk about the precarious work as well as the general makeup of minimum wage workers in Ontario and the change of minimum wage workers in Ontario over time. It talks about the livable wage as well that has been proposed in British Columbia. There are so many articles on this website, but what's most important, I think, is that there's a document, and it's linked in my sources uh, for this podcast, which outlines exactly all of the wins workers received as a result of Bill 47, introduced by the PC government. Going back to Christopher at 16, working in this retail store at Scarborough Town Center, I couldn't even think about taking paid vacation days. I couldn't think of the government ensuring that I had time off for domestic or sexual assault, or that my child could take, or I or my child, if we were affected, um, I could take time off for that. I couldn't think of the fact that there would be actual provisions in there for me to take unpaid days but for bereavement or for personal emergency days. That I could actually take those times off because in the in the minimum wage era that I worked in, if you took time off like that, not only was it unpaid, but your worker could actually let you go even if it was justified. Why did I want to do an episode on on, on minimum wage? What do I believe are the important aspects of minimum wage that the province should think about? Well, first, it's that raising the minimum wage too quickly is, in fact, quite detrimental for the economy. Raising it too quickly, like 26% over two years, can be very bad. In Quebec, they did that in the 1970s. They raised the minimum wage very quickly, and what happened was there was a massive recession, of course, outside Quebec's control. But businesses were less likely to hire people because of this high minimum wage. Ontario has the highest minimum wage in all of Canada. And what Quebec saw after it tried to raise the minimum wage too quickly too fast is that its minimum wage had to drop. And it stagnated throughout the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. So that's one aspect. Another aspect that governments need to consider is that the makeup of minimum wage workers are more diverse and there's just more Ontarians working minimum wage than ever before. In 1997, 3% of our workforce worked minimum wage. By 2014, this increased to 13%. Also, we have to consider the fact that minimum wage earners and increasing the minimum wage, it's not necessarily true that all minimum wage earners come from low-income families. In fact, there are studies to show that 9.3% of all minimum wage earners, come from low-income families. The Ontario average is 9.2%. So what we're seeing is that if you're a minimum wage earner, you're just as likely to come from a low-income family as someone who is not a minimum wage earner in Ontario. So making the inference that minimum wage earners are low-income families as well is a big inference. What the evidence shows is that there's not that direct correlation. Now, proponents of increasing the minimum wage would say that by boosting minimum wage, you're also boosting the economy. Earners, uh, people who make minimum wage, are more likely to spend than save. And in turn, this boosts the economy, especially the consumer economy. There are studies like... What was the researchers in Chicago found that for every dollar increase of the minimum wage, it increases their spending by their families, household families, by $2,800 per year per household. So there's a direct correlation between increasing minimum wage and boosting the economy. Now, of course, that spending isn't on like what I did at 16 on frivolous things, it's most likely on the necessities of living. It's most likely on the things that are needed, like putting food on the table, like personal items and personal care, like making sure rent is taken care of. This is what minimum wage earners are spending their money on. They're not spending their money frivolously, generally speaking. What's also important to this debate is making sure that both sides are being discussed. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce raised really good points and strong points, because while the government may institute an increase to the minimum wage, businesses are the ones that have to pay it. They're the ones that will have to employ uh, Ontarians. And it's so important that we look at both sides. But most importantly, it's so critical. It is so critical. When we look at Bill 148 that the Win government proposed and Bill 47 that the PC government under Doug Ford proposed, we understand, and we celebrate the things that are kept. Because those things are very important, and they're important to our discourse. The amount of media that I've seen that has grilled this government on the fact that they removed two paid sick days and didn't increase the minimum wage from 14 to $15 an hour is mind-boggling. It's absurd. There are so many things inside Bill 47 that have been kept that I would argue should make the time of day. I'm glad that minimum wage earners now have paid vacation if they've stayed in their jobs for uh, five years or more. I'm glad that there is paid time off for earners that have, are subjected to domestic and sexual violence. These are things that we as Ontarians should celebrate. We should be the ones saying that this is so great that our government is, has enshr- enshrined these things into legislation that all employees, regardless of what they earn are now mandated to follow. these are things that uh, workers' groups should celebrate now don't get me wrong bill forty seven doesn't maybe doesn't go far enough. maybe there's a lot of uh, holes as well in this, but it's so important that we keep this conversation balanced that we look at it from an objective lens that we're not so quick to judge. And I'm not trying to make this uh, podcast about defending the Progressive Conservative Party, not at all. What I've uncovered in this debate is that a miss, a gross misunderstanding of Bill 47 has been done. And when that's done, it shapes our understanding of an issue. It shapes our discourse. Every single time we interact with people, if we interact with people based on flawed and fictitious Facts. We become uh, divisive. A pro-poverty agenda? Really? Does anyone believe that a government across Canada or any of the developed world would actually institute a pro-poverty agenda? That politicians would sit around and say to themselves, yeah, you know what we need? I think we need more poverty. I really hope that As we move forward, and as this podcast moves forward, we can remember the fact that we need to stay so balanced in our discourse. When we have conversations with each other, we have to make sure that we understand what we're saying. And if we don't know what we're saying, we openly say that. Inquisition means that we need to inquire with open minds, open hearts. Far be it for me to assume that I know what Bill 47 says in and out. But far be it for me to assume that Bill 47 is only in the interests of the rich and Bill 148 was only in the interests of the poor. That's a gross, gross misstatement. One in which that I would not be held accountable for, but I would include in my day-to-day conversations with friends. So when we interact, let's make sure that we're trying our best to fully understand the topic. That we get it, we understand it, and we're committed to action if it requires that. Thank you. And remember, stay balanced, stay informed. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. And remember, stay balanced, stay informed.